Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 295, Self-Publishing versus Traditional Publishing, with Jody McIsaac and Jennifer Fainer-Wells. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. I'm without Christy today, and I'm going to keep my comments brief, as I think all of this Hugo Awards discussion has given me a chest cold. So we're going to take a break from talking it this week. Today we are joined by hybrid authors Jennifer Fainer-Wells and Jody McIsaac. Our discussion will be a two-part episode focusing on the here and now of self-publishing versus traditional publishing. We wanted to bring some guests on that we knew could give advice that would be applicable to today. You go back and you listen to interviews with folks like Hugh Howie, and that advice might have been helpful a couple of years ago, but not so much helpful today. So we wanted to provide a perspective from individuals that are seeing success today and what it's taking for them to be successful. If you're looking for more Hugo's talk to get back to the discussion of the Hugo Awards, I do encourage you to give a listen to Christie's interview with the province's Book Rogues podcast. And I'm going to include a link in the show notes. And also, you should expect a special guest on the show, our show, to speak about the Hugo Awards and voting. I'm not going to reveal whom just yet because we're looking to lock down a date. But no, we haven't abandoned the Hugo's talk as as much as some of us might like to. And actually, we'll just follow the process along, obviously interspersing some relevant news on other awards and other topics as you know, it becomes available. Speaking of shows, I want to give a quick nod to a new show you might consider checking out particularly if you're a fan of all things Grimdark. Rob Matheny, who is kind of a behind-the-scenes contributor to our podcast, he and his motley crew have launched the Grim Tidings podcast, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes. Again, I'll I'll leave a link on the show notes. So I checked out their first show, and it's a lot of fun and covers all things Grimdark, from movies, TV shows, books, video games, music, and you'll, you'll definitely want to check it out. Probably going to be the R-rated sister, I will tell you, though, to uh, or R-rated brother to uh, to our show. So anyway, uh, definitely uh, a fun listen and encourage you to to check it out. With that, as you can hear, I'm afraid I'm going to cough into the microphone and I don't want to do that. I'm going to leave you this week. But I do want to say whether you're listening to the show for the first time or a longtime listener, I know this last several weeks have been trying for the community And I want to thank all of you who do listen to the show, and I hope you'll stick around with us and follow us through this journey, not only in the near term, but for years to come. And with that, I'll leave you for this week. Take care. This episode is brought to you by The Owl and the Japanese Circus by Christy Cherish, ex-archaeology grad student turned international antiquities thief Alex, better known now as Owl, has one rule, no supernatural jobs, ever. 
until she crosses paths with Mr. Kurosawa, a red dragon who owns and runs the Japanese circus casino in Las Vegas. He insists Owl retrieve an artifact stolen 3,000 years ago and makes her an offer she can't refuse. He'll get rid of the pack of vampires that want her dead. A dragon is about the only entity on the planet that can deliver on Owl's vampire problem. And let's face it, dragons are known to eat the odd thief. Book one in the series, Owl and the Japanese Circus, is currently available in the U.S. and internationally. And the follow-up, Owl and the City of Angels, is available for pre-order at select venues. To learn more and order online, come to the show notes, episode 295, and click on the image that you will see from Owl and the Japanese Circus by Christy Cherish. The question of whether to self-publish or traditionally publish is still one of the most debated topics in the industry, with no shortage on either side willing to offer their opinions. The trouble is with the conversation is there's often a significant lag in information. We usually look to people who've spent the last five to ten years succeeding at becoming a household name, and sometimes that information given by writers you know, with some authority is is no longer really relevant to people that are aspiring to get into the field. So our next two guests, Jennifer Fainer Wells, the science fiction author of Fluency and many other titles, and Jody McIsaac, contemporary fantasy author of the Thin Veil series, are probably best defined as hybrid authors, and they've seen recent success in self-publishing as well as recently negotiated contracts with the publisher. They're not your grandmother's self-publishing stars. So that's why we, we've decided to have them on the show. They're exactly the kind of indie authors we wanted to talk to to find out what it's really like for the new, the hopeful, and the uninitiated. So I'm, I'm hopeful still, I think, but I, I'm not in the new and uninitiated, unfortunately. So, and... We've got a special treat for you as well this evening, and being the scientist that she is, we've added a control measure. Our own recently traditionally published author, Christy Cherish, is going to serve as our newbie traditionally published author, as she is in a position of fighting for every single reader and contract she can get her grubby little hands on. So we're going to have Christy chime in as well. So everybody, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My grubby little hands. I like that. <laughs> your grubby little, your grubby little hands. So, <laughs> so Jen and Jody, uh, again, thanks again for being on the show and joining us this evening. And and before we proceed for the next, you know, about the next hour and telling Christy exactly what she's doing wrong, <laughs> uh, why why don't you guys share with our listeners what you write? And we're going to go ahead and start with Jen first, and then Jody uh, will have you share. Okay, well, um, I primarily write science fiction, um, character-driven science fiction, I guess you would call it. And um, uh, I've really, I've, I've had one success so far, fluency. All right, Jody. Uh, well, I've written a contemporary fantasy series, as you said. It's called The Thin Veil, and it's based on Irish mythology. And three of those books are traditionally published with 47 North, Amazon Publishing Science Fiction and Fantasy imprint. And then I did a self-published novella that's part of that series as well. Um, and I actually started out as a self-publisher when I first published the book, but I think we'll get into that later. Um, I've also written, recently finished a near-future thriller, so getting away from 
fantasy for a little bit. And this one's about a woman and her schizophrenic brother during a global virus pandemic. And that one's not published yet, but is currently out on submission with publishers. Okay. And then I'm about halfway through the first book in a new series that's historical fantasy. And that one's about an IRA soldier who time travels to various points in Irish history to help a legendary Irish warrior. The first book is set in the Irish Civil War in the 1920s. So that's what I'm up to my neck in right now. Oh, that's the current work in progress. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you both. And now we're going to reverse course. Christy, do you feel compelled to tell us what you write? Are we going to let me tell, say what I write? Um, yeah, go sure. ahead. Sure. I'll go ahead. Um, I told you we were going to haze you through this whole hey, thing, right? That's all right. I don't mind. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely a new author. Um, some some of the listeners probably are are a bit familiar with um, with some of my works. Uh, I signed on with Simon and Schuster, oddly enough, last year, and my first book just came out, Owl in the Japanese Circus. Uh, it's urban fantasy, um, and it's about an ex-archaeology graduate student turned international antiquities thief. And it, um, the inspiration is very much Indiana Jane with monsters. So I have two books in that series, and I recently signed on with Random House Canada uh, for my second urban fantasy series, Kincaid Strange. And that's three books, and that's um, coming out next May. The first book will be coming out, and it's about a voodoo practitioner who lives and works in Seattle and lives with the ghost of uh, infamous grunge rocker, deceased grunge rocker, Nathan Cade. Yeah, so I'm very, very new to the whole publishing game, but oddly enough, I ended up in the traditional route. Um, I ended up going the traditional route really quickly, so that's... I guess why I'm participating this time around. Yeah, a big part of this was going to be lessons learned from the multiple paths that you guys have all encountered as recent successes in your publishing ventures. So let's talk about those paths. And we'll start with Jody this time. Jody, tell me, and then Jen, let's each of you tell me about your respective roads or paths to publishing. Okay, well, I started writing through the door, I don't know, five years ago, maybe. That's the first book in the Thin Veil series. And decided to give self-publishing a try. I you know, researched all the options and I have a marketing background. I don't know. I like trying different things. I like trying experimenting with things. I wasn't you know, sold on always being a self-publisher, obviously. Um, I just thought, I think that I can do this. I think I can do it well. And so I'm going to give it a try. And if it doesn't work, if it fails horribly, then I'll try some other publishing path. Um, but fortunately for me, it sold really well in the first few months when it was published, when I self-published it about three years ago. Um, and then 47 North approached me and said that they would love to republish through the door, as well as the next two books in the series, at which point I pretended that I had two books in the series planned, which I didn't. <laughs> so I didn't tell them that, though. Uh, so I quickly wrote two more books and been with them ever since. And so that's how I came through self-publishing and then working with what's sort of a traditional publisher. I think that the Amazon publishing falls in the middle a little bit. And so it's been, you know, that's itself has been an experiment as well. Okay, Jen? When I was writing Fluency, I was researching all of these different options. And um, I had pretty much decided that I was going to do indie publishing. And uh, I have a local 
uh, writers group that I belong to. And uh, when it came time for them to read the book, someone that I really trusted from the group pulled me aside and said, you know, I think you're really selling yourself short if you don't try to go traditional with this. It's good enough to be traditionally published, and um, I think you could succeed. So I decided to just uh, give it a little bit of a try, and I did do some querying and things like that. And right about that time, this would have been in um, the summer of 2014, a lot of information had come out about a lot of authors, traditionally published and indie authors, were coming out and talking about how much they were making for the first time ever. All that stuff had sort of been kept very secret for a long time. Um, at least I wasn't aware of it. And so when I started hearing some of these numbers, I thought, wow, let's say I got you know a traditional publisher for fluency. I probably would never see more than three to $7,000 for that book after spending two years working on it. And I, and I kind of just felt like I just wanted more control. So I decided to go back to my original plan, which was to self-publish the book. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that I did because it turned out to work out really well for me. Since then, I've been offered a lot of the traditional publishing perks. Um, so I, I've been offered some deals, like I have some deals in, um, in Europe right now. Fluency is going to be published in Germany next year. And so that's, that's going to be done by, you know, a division of Random House. So I'm kind of seeing the best of both worlds here. If you become popular enough as an independent author, you, you do start to see some of these other things happen. But yeah, it's, it's been quite a whirlwind. You know, when I wrote Fluency, I kind of thought, well, this is just sort of one, this is a stepping stone. This is the, my first book. It's, <laughs> no one's going to read this one. Uh, hopefully I'll be better by the next one. And then, you know, things will move along. But it, it just, it's all been an incredible surprise. Oh, your trial balloon, if you were, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Jody, you were going to say something? Yeah, sorry. It was just, I thought the exact same thing about Through the Door. I thought, oh, this is my practice novel. And its success really caught me off guard. And then I realized, oh, I have to make some decisions here regarding, you know, a career. Um, so it's just been interesting the way that sometimes success comes where you least expect it. Yeah, like you said, you had to, to kind of fake it to make it when they asked you for the second and third books, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Jan, let me, let me follow up because, Jody, it sounds like both of you, and this was a question we received online via Twitter. You guys, I know, uh, were helping us spread the word that we were soliciting fan questions for both of you. And one of the questions was, when did you make the decision to go self-publish versus the traditional publisher? And it sounds like... Jody, you almost immediately said self-publishing's the route I want to go. Janet, yeah. it sounds like you you sent out some trial balloons to see if you could get a traditional publisher. How long how long did you work through that process? Maybe a few months. It was so discouraging. I never that whole process is just fraught with pitfalls. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh I mean, I have friends who are, who do it, you know, nonstop and they never flag. They just keep sending out those queries, but for me it was just like I don't know. It was very strange to me. Just all these shouts into the void and sending out all these things and and making sure that every single step was accomplished the way they wanted it. Every agent seems to have their own setup uh, the way they like things. And if you misstep, forget it. It's in the trash. All of those kinds of things just sort of, I don't know, set me on edge or something. So I just decided that, you know, I'd had enough of it and I was going to do it my own way. I liked having more control over the process for myself. 
Would you both make that same decision again today to go that route? Oh, absolutely. Jody? With that particular book, yes. But, you know, I have a book out on submission right now with traditional publishers. And so, you know, it's not something that I'm looking at doing right now at this point in my career. But if I had to go back in time and, and yeah, I mean, it worked wonderfully. I couldn't have asked for an easier you know, transition from self-publishing into traditional publishing. I haven't sent a single query letter. And so that's been amazing. That, that's an interesting concept. So you said that particular book versus the one you have out for submission today. What, what in your mind were some of the distinguishing characteristics of one book over the other? Was it just this was your first one versus you've established some relationships or was there something about the source material that, that led you to that work or that well, decision? I think it's mostly that just that was the first book. And so for me, you know, self-publishing was great and I, I did enjoy it. It's a ton of work. But so is traditional publishing, um, really. So I, I would definitely do it again as a first book and then as a way of opening up other doors and other possibilities. And I don't really know where I'm going to land, which is why I'm a hybrid author. I don't have to pick one particular camp or path and stick with it. You know, I can have one book that's self-published and one that's traditionally published, and, you know, another with Amazon, whatever. There's all kinds of choices now, I think, that are open for writers, which is wonderful. Um, the book I have on submission right now is a literary thriller. I don't know if it would do as well as a self-published novel as my contemporary fantasy one did. You know, so you have to kind of make those decisions based on what sells really well, you know, as an ebook versus what sells great as a hardcover um, and make decisions based on that. So really, it's a book by book basis that I'm looking at, um, plus the relationships and, you know, that I've made in publishing, which have been amazing, working with great editors. I want to continue working with them. All kinds of things like that play into these decisions. All right. Excellent. And that's what I was curious about from a category, knowing you have a marketing background, if if there was some distinguishing characteristic of the category or the genre, the subgenre that you were thinking about when you were thinking, you know, placement uh, would help. So excellent. Thank you. Uh, Christy, you've <laughs> gone the traditional route straight out of the gate. Why did that happen? It's really fascinating listening to both you, Jen, and you, Jody, because I had the same reaction with my first book in that it was a practice novel. Let's try this and throw this out there and, and see what happens. I have a bit of a marketing background, but nowhere near strong enough that I would have felt comfortable with all of the things that are involved with producing a book. So I, I was already a bit um, knowing how much work is involved with self-publishing, cover editing, uh, copy editors, every, you know, everything that um, getting your book out there to different markets. Um, I, I was already nervous about that route. Having said that, I did up my query letter. I was going to send it out to about 20 or 50 agents. You know, that was sort of my ballpark. And I was doing it in about 10 letter batches. So 10 email batches where I personalized them and, and send out my query. And I, I kind of fully expected that I would, you know, send out 50, never hear back from an agent. And that would be the end of it. Uh, you know, and then I would try and, and investigate the self-publishing route. I ended up, and it's possible that this is also, um, a bit biased because I'm Canadian, 
because I uh, was also had access to Canadian agents. And so I queried a number of Canadian agents that represent Canadian sci-fi and fantasy authors and, and were interested in that. And um, I ended up in my first batch of, of queries, I ended up my agent, uh, my agent now, Carolyn Ford, ended up picking it up and um, being interested in it. And I really liked her. And all the agents I, I wrote to were ones who represented authors whose careers I liked. Um, that was one of my little qualifying factors where it was, okay, if I'm going to go the traditional route, these are authors I really admire. I like their work. I like where their careers have gone, you know, on top of their writing. And uh, she represented authors I, I admired. Um, and we got along quite well. We had, um, I, I liked what she had to say about long-term career goals and things like that. And then we sort of got to the next hurdle, which was, you know, and I, I had a very realistic um, opinion, you know, sort of uh, idea going in that even though I had an agent who had sold works. It was by no means whatsoever any guarantee that my work would be picked up by a publisher. So it could still be a dead end. And also not being a published author, that was another thing as well, where it's like, well, it may not get picked up because you have no track record out there. I ended up being very, very lucky, luck plus hard work, but um, there's definitely a factor of luck in there, where um, I was happy with the Deal, being happy with my agent, being happy with um, sort of the idea that we had for my career, and then being happy with the deals that were put on the table. That's what really, you know, it, it, it really is like a three-part component. And at any point, if, you know, things hadn't have been going wrong or I had been really unhappy with things, um, it, it, it could have been that I would have gone the self-publishing route. But um, the advantages that I guess appealed to me were you've got the editor, you've got marketing, you've got all of that stuff taken care of. So that, that's how I ended up in that route. The agent relationship is, is something interesting. So you've talked about establishing or receiving that representation. Uh, Jen, Jody, I know Jody's story. So Jody, I'm going to put you on the table for a second, not maliciously, but <laughs> I know you've got a bit of unique story here. But, but Jen, you have representation with some yes, of the deals? You. Okay. How did, how did that, uh, going about obtaining that, that representation go for you? Well, it was actually, it was painless. Um, at that stage in the game, um, I had already sold something like 30,000 copies of Fluency and I was making a lot of friends in the, in the sci-fi indie publishing world. And, um, someone just said, you know, I know this, I have this name of this guy and you should definitely get in touch with him. And it was Danny Barrore. So I basically, I was just like, well, you know, I didn't expect anything to happen. But I had gotten a couple of agents just sort of cold call me, ask me if I was looking for representation at that point. But Danny was sort of the pie in the sky kind of agent that I wanted, someone who was very good at getting international deals. I wanted to stay indie in the United States and, and have the potential of of uh, doing some traditional publishing overseas. So I just sent him an email and there was never really any question. He was very interested from the start. So it's been an awesome working relationship. He basically just takes almost everything out of my hands and does all that stuff and then just sends me the check. For the foreign rights. Excellent. Right. <laughs> That's right. nice. So no hard sell. You just sent him an email based on a referral and yeah, basically, I just said, this is who I am. This is how much I've sold. You know, uh, are you interested in representing me? He said, let's talk on the phone. And, and that was basically it. Excellent. Excellent. That's, yeah. that's great. Now, Jody, I had set you aside a little bit because I had read some of your experience online. And 
you have a bit of a unique story. You mind sharing that with our listeners? Sure. In regards to how I found my agent? How you found your agent, but even starting your original relationship with 47 North. You represented yourself, did you not? I did represent myself. It's actually funny when, when 47 North, you know, called me and we went back and forth a little bit and they said, you know, we love through the door. We want to buy it. And the next two in this non-existent series, I panicked a little bit and I thought, I can't do this by myself. I need an agent. You know, that's just kind of what I (laughs) believed. And so I queried a couple of agents and I said, look, I've got this offer on the table. I just need you to help me negotiate it. That's all I'm asking. But I got rejected from both of them, which was kind of depressing. I was like, man, like I have an offer. I'm offering you 15% just to do the paperwork. And, you know, you still don't like my writing enough. So that was a bit of a reality check. But then I thought, you know what? I do have an offer on the table. I don't need an agent. And so I did negotiate the contract myself and I used a lot of resources that I found online. Like I did a ton of research and agent Kristen Nelson has a great blog series on how to negotiate your own contract. That's, you know, many, many years old, but all the principles still applied. So I relied heavily on that. And then I negotiated the, um, the contract. And then once that series was done, I had written a short story called a cure for madness, um, for Amazon's short story imprint called Storyfront. And I thought, you know, I love this story. I want to turn it into a novel and I want to see where where I can take it. And so before I even started writing the novel, someone suggested a few names of some agents to me. And I contacted one of them and I said, look, here's this short story that I've written. I want you to represent my novel that I have yet to write. Um, and he <laughs> loved the story. And he said, yes, I love this story. I, he was confident that I would be able to write a novel that um, he loved as well. And uh, so that's my current agent now. Are you with the Canadian agency as well? Because I, I, you're Canadian, correct? I'm Canadian. Okay. No, I'm with Paul Lucas at Jenklo and Nesbitt in New York. In New York. Okay. So you went the New York agency route as opposed to the Canadian agency route. Well, excellent. Congratulations to you all <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> well, you know, Christy mentioned this this notion of help and seeking out help, and that's one of the, the benefits of going the traditional publishing route. But even for folks that self-publish, I hear often along the way that you need help. So what help going the the indie route and Jody, because I, I put you on hold the first time, we'll come back to you. What what help did you, I know you had the marketing background, but what help did you have in, in getting the self-published book up and out and into the world? Well, I did rely a lot on my own background and just basic marketing principles, but also because I worked in that community and in a community of other artists. You know, I had access to graphic artists, to, you know, proofreaders, to web design people, like all the kind of people that I would need in order to do this were my friends, basically, or I knew of them through other people. And so I was able to put together that team quite well. I did make the mistake of having my mom do the editing and she's an amazing editor, but she took out all the swear words. Note to self, don't hire your mother, even if she's an editor. Um, <laughs> and other than that, I relied a lot, again, on the people who had come before me, on, uh, you know, Joanna Penn and her blog, The Creative Pen, on Jane Friedman, other experts. You know, there were a lot of blogs out there, and I just read and read and read and read and read. Then went with the best information that I could find. 
Excellent. Yeah, I, I'm going to store that note away to not have my mother read my. <laughs> that, no, great tip. I think that I think that'll make it into the show notes for sure. <laughs> so, Jen, what what help did you have along the way? We talked about Christy and Jody having a marketing background. You, you've sold th- thousands and thousands of copies of Fluency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no mention of a marketing background here. Nope. What, what, <laughs> what help did you have along the way in getting fluency out into the world? That's a great question. <laughs> um, basically, Twitter was what really uh, made my career for me, I think. About the time that I had started writing fluency, I, already, I, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I knew that I, I wanted to be a sci-fi writer. And so... At that time, you know, just like Jody was saying, you know, she's she was looking to all the experts. I was doing the same thing. And I'm not sure where I got the idea that Twitter was going to be, you know, helpful. But um, somewhere along the line, I got that idea. And I started building a Twitter following, basically just um, looking for other people like me who were interested in similar parts of the genre and having ongoing conversations about the genre with them. And so... I just started building then. So this was this would have been two years ago um, or more, maybe closer to three. And uh, so I started building then. By the time I launched Fluency, I had 10,000 followers. Um, most of those people were science fiction fantasy aficionados of some flavor. And I didn't do like the big cover reveal. I didn't build anything up. I had mentioned from time to time that I was writing a novel, but I think 99% of the people on Twitter tweet about writing a novel <laughs> on a basis. Yeah, they so, have stickers for I, the, the hashtag am writing. So right, you, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I didn't think that I was really standing out that much. But the day that I announced that Fluency was available for sale, the very first day that I mentioned it, 500 people bought that book. So from that moment, then the algorithms on Amazon sort of took over and it became more visible. And so it sort of snowballed at that point. As the early reviews started coming in and they were favorable, you know, that all seemed to help and it went crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can point to Twitter as an instigator there, but I don't heavily market on Twitter. I'm not one of those people that, that is out there blasting book marketing stuff. I talk about things when something exciting happens. Uh, regarding the book, you know, Boing Boing just mentioned my book a few days ago, and that was exciting. So, of course, I was mentioning that on Twitter. But in general, I try not to mention the book too much um, because people get get tired of that. So, I'm not, I can't really answer that question with any coherence, I guess. I can just say being on Twitter helped, um, but I didn't have a marketing plan. Like I said before, I didn't expect it to sell. So, um, my goals were very, very modest for that book. And they just um, exceeded them tremendously. Well, and right now you have about 23,000 watts with your Twitter follower. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> or who's that are helping you, I think, with, with some of that now. Yeah. Well, excellent. We talked a little bit about earlier, I mean, this was unlikely success, I think, for all of you in at least the self-publishing components that you expected this to be a test novel and then you ended up saying unlikely success or wasn't unexpected success. But as you've gone through the process, what's been the most eye-opening or surprising thing about your publishing path? Where did you maybe have an expectation that it would go one way and then it went completely opposite from, from a reality standpoint? It went completely opposite of your expectation. Jan, let's stay with you on this one. Oh, I was hoping you would say somebody else. Oh, <laughs> well, we can go with Jody then. 
Joe, okay, do you want I, to start with that, or I can pick on Christy too? I haven't picked on <laughs> I didn't pick on Christy on the last one. Well, I can make something up for sure. <laughs> I'm good at that. I think what was surprising for me just was the initial success. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I lie a little bit when I say that because I worked so hard on the book. You know, I had confidence that it was a good book, that it was well written, and then I worked so hard on the marketing. And I spent a lot of my own money, you know, buying Facebook ads, getting a professional website, getting the cover designed, um, just doing everything that I could, throwing every strand of spaghetti at the wall and hoping it was something, one of them would stick. And so I really hoped that it would do well. The speed at which it did well shocked me. And I think this was back in the day when if you enrolled in the KDP Select program and gave away your book for free for a few days, that that was still, you know, the number one thing you could do as an indie author to promote your books. I've heard it's changed by now. But I did that. And, you know, it got 60,000 copies downloaded in those five days. And those were free copies. I didn't make a penny off of them, but a lot of those people read the book and liked it and left a review. So then the reviews started pouring in and then they started talking to their friends or tweeting about it or, you know, Facebooking, talking about it on blogs. Um, and then, you know, the sales just started going up, up, up and up. And that to me, I was expecting something more, you know, steady, maybe a couple of hundred sales a month or something like that. But, you know, I think it was 20,000 that were sold in the first four months. And so that just blew me away the snowball of it interesting yeah. okay jen yeah my answer is pretty much the same um that was that was really shocking to me how fast that that could happen for me i i, had, I didn't know of any precedent i mean i've talked to hugh howie about this and he was shocked at how quickly my book went sort of viral i didn't even know that it could happen that way <laughs> you know what i mean just from cooking book conversations on twitter it went that way essentially i mean i guess <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Christy, I know you've, this one I'll ask you, because I know you had some expectations coming into traditional publishing, and then the reality may, may be quite a bit different. <laughs> um, initially coming into it, I think that I knew there was a lot of, so the genre I write in, which is urban fantasy, I knew there was a lot of urban fantasy that came out um, in ebook and physical book, you know, every month. I had no idea just how much there really was. So it is a very, very tough market. There's a lot of great authors out there. And you see great authors who are both self-published and both coming in from the publishers. So I knew signal to noise was going to be an issue in, in trying to just get anyone, you know, in the first six months that your book is in a, in a bookstore or that it's on, um, it's on Amazon to get people to even pick up and look at the book, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I didn't realize just how much competition there was out there. So that was a huge eye opener. And I, I guess, I guess on the positive side, the other thing that I didn't expect was, you know, on, on the other side, I've been surprised with how many people have picked it up just in the first couple of months and how many people did review it and how incredibly important the blogging community is for urban fantasy authors. So just reviewers and stuff, um, and they're fantastic. So that I think was a positive eye-opener because if I think you're willing to do like a, a little write-up or you're willing to do a giveaway, they're more than happy to have you on their blog and it's great exposure. And, you know, in some cases it might be that you sell 10 or 20 books, but that's 10 or 20 books you wouldn't have sold if you hadn't have approached them. So yeah, it's a lot of work. It doesn't matter if you're self-published or traditional, getting an audience is going to be a challenge regardless. 
So we're talking about this this concept of work, and I know, Jody, early on, you had mentioned how much work it was to self-publish a novel. So, I mean, because you're taking this thing from concept to finished product, and you, you mentioned a term, you know, that uh, harkens to my, my day job, which is I have to put a team together. <laughs> I have to put a team together, including the, you know, the design and marketing aspects of that. For you all, what was the biggest challenge in getting the book self-published? What was that big challenge for you all? I mean, aside from your mother uh, editing out all the swear words. <laughs> um, I think just learning how to do it all. You know, if you're talking about a new self-publisher, someone who hasn't, you know, is not putting out a book, you know, twice a year and hasn't been through this and doesn't have their team already built, when you're just starting out, it's like, well, who do I trust how do I find somebody who can format this book? I don't know, do I just Google ebook formatter and pick somebody off the list, right? How do I find somebody who I know is legitimate, who is going to be high quality, who's going to be professional and get their things in time? You know, because you're now the production manager. You've got to make sure that the cover comes in on time and that the back cover is fine too. And then the flap copy is you know, edited, and then it's formatted for all the different formats, and then it's uploaded to all this, you know, like, there's just so many balls in the air. And, and you have to manage all of that as the author and as the production manager. And so just finding that team, I think, is the biggest challenge of editor, designer, you know, layout person, formatter, all those different roles. Once you've found them, then, and you all work well together, then it really can run like a well oiled machine. Um, but it's putting them together in the first place, that's the challenge. Jen, for you? Yeah, I, again, I have to echo what Jody said, that for me, sort of the serendipitous luck of having, uh, in my case, I just happened to come across some artwork by Stephen Martinier, mm. and uh, he ended up being my cover artist. At the time, I didn't know that he was a famous artist and that he was important in the genre. I just knew I liked his work. And so those kind of sort of uh, serendipitous moments that I've had over the course of this uh, book launch and, and, and things have really helped make the book special. So many people have said that, you know, if, if they hadn't seen that beautiful cover, they probably wouldn't have looked at the book twice. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, that the, finding that team, like she said, that is that is really key. And, and you cannot underestimate how important each of those segments of the team are. Let's talk about those segments of the team, and because you mentioned Stephen Martinair, Jen, obviously, unless you're a long-lost relative of his, I, I don't think you were calling in a favor to him. No. <laughs> so, no. The, so for you all, how, how much of that was these folks were being compensated for their time as a member of the team versus, you know, I'm, I'm calling in a favor. So because a lot of traditional publishing, and I've even workshopped with a lot of the what folks would consider some of the best and brightest from either an author standpoint in the genre or editors even. And one of the tenets of the conversations we would have when we workshop is Yogg's Law, that money always flows to the writer. So right. that's one of those big controversial things about self-publishing is this outpouring of potential money to build a team when are you going to get that return on investment? Oh, so yeah. Yeah, so what did that, Jen first, and then Jody, what did that look like for you guys from a, from a breakdown standpoint? Well, at that point in time, I had been a stay-at-home mom for 10 years, and I had no income. 
So here I was with this book and my husband saying, I believe in you. And, you know, I knew that a cover was important. And for me, I already had, I, I had the writer's group that I belonged to and they, we were workshopping the heck out of the book and I'd invested two years into it. And I just was like, you know, I, I basically, I just saw his work and said, this is, this is the kind of cover that I want. And I contacted him and after going back and forth a couple of times, he agreed to do it. Uh, I think he was just... Uh, he did give me a little bit of a discount and I think he was just, you know, he thought that the project sounded interesting. Um, so that, that can always work in your favor too, if you can pique their interest. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I just decided, you know, I basically, I just, I said, well, I've, you know, I've got this thing and it, and I just felt like, you know, it's not going to succeed if I don't invest. Like a lot of things in life, you have to kind of go all in. When you decide to have a baby, you can't just do it a little bit. You kind of have to just do it. <laughs> Right. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to put everything I've got into this. I took money out of my family's savings to pay for that cover. And I talk to young people all the time who are, you know, just starting on the self-publishing path. And they say, well, I can't afford this or I can't afford that or I can't afford an editor. And I'm like, oh, if you can't invest in yourself, then, you, you know, you're never going to make it. You have to believe in yourself. It's so critical. You know, I don't know if maybe, maybe I'm not the right person to be a good example, but I, I really, I, I think that you have to do those things if you want to succeed. I mean, there aren't very many examples of, you know, sort of viral books that in the self-publishing world that have done really well that have terrible covers. Those are things that I think are just too important to overlook. Jen, I think you need to change your Twitter profile now to Jennifer... Fainer Wells, the bane of savings accounts everywhere. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. That's why we ask. It's 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 a different slice for everybody, right? So right. so so Jody, breakdown for you when you were talking about assembling a team. How much of that were you calling in favors based on past life, and how how much of that was uh, paid contribution? You know, it was pretty much all paid contribution because I went into this thinking I'm going to treat this like a business and this is my small business that I'm setting up, my through the door small business. And I mean, I called in, I wouldn't say calling in favors except for, you know, my mom, um, (laughs) was I should have just paid somebody, but I had a, you know, a friend who was an amazing graphic designer. And so I hired him to do the, the cover, which isn't the same cover that I have now because 47 North redid all the covers um, and they're both beautiful. But he did my original cover and the interior layout. And I mean, he gave me a deal because we were friends, but he's also extremely expensive to begin with. So his deal wasn't, you know, it's not like it was dirt cheap. It was still very expensive. But I feel the exact same way as Jen, that it was an investment and that I wanted this book to be the same quality in every way as, you know, a traditionally published book. And that included cover and that included layout and formatting. You know, I didn't want anything that was going to distract the reader from the story. And so I wanted to put my very best into it. And yeah, that meant money. And and I've I've relearned since then that I didn't have to spend as much money again because I didn't know who were the right people to go to. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned that when I did my novella a couple of years later, I was like, oh, I can pay somebody $50 to do, you know, this part of it instead of 500. Why didn't I know that before? 
you know, but I just, I was smarter and I, and I did more research and I, I knew people by then in the industry that I could ask, Hey, who's your cover designer? Who's your formatter? You know, who does your interior layout, all of these different things. And then could get recommendations from people who had used, you know, great professionals who were not obscenely expensive. So that has really helped. And if I were to go back to self-publishing, I would do that again. And I'd be able to self-publish another book for a fraction of what I spent on through the door. But because I didn't know, I just kept throwing money at it and kind of regret that. So does my husband. <laughs> <laughs> also, ruiner of savings accounts everywhere, yes. right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>